You're listening to Gippsland Perspective on 1039 Life FM. On October 14th, Australians will vote in an historic referendum to decide whether to change the constitution to recognise the Indigenous people of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The proposal put forward states the voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Government on, quote, matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, unquote, and that the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Australia has a history of taking referenda seriously and people want to make informed decisions. With early voting starting next week, this morning on Gippsland Perspective, we'll be hearing from the yes and no sides. The interviews are conducted by Dwayne Jeffries on behalf of Better Balanced Futures, representing the combined faith communities of Australia. The interviews include issues requested to be raised by the leaders of the Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu and Christian communities. Later, we'll hear from Senator Jacinta Napajimpa-Price to state the case for no. Firstly, we'll hear from Noel Pearson with the case for yes. Noel Pearson, thank you for taking time to speak with me and the various faith communities around Australia. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Faith communities represent not just a significant part of Australia, but also committed to doing what's best for our First Nations peoples. As a leader in your community, what are the biggest issues facing Indigenous Australians today? And has that list changed over your time in public service? Okay, there's problems that we share with other disadvantaged peoples, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and their problems of poverty and disadvantage, um, intergenerational welfare dependency and all of the problems that come with that. But there's also issues that we face that arise from our history as Indigenous peoples in this country and uh, our experience through 230 years of uh, British colonisation of Australia commencing in 1788, the dispossession of our people from our homelands, the removal of people and children from families, um, our various experiences on the frontier and in the aftermath of the frontier. All of these things represent a legacy in the present, that historical treatment, and we're trying to tackle the the legacy of both. Is there anything specifically that faith communities can do that isn't being done yet? Well, I was actually born in a Lutheran mission in Cape York Peninsula, as was my father. And my grandfather had been removed to a mission, um, to the mission in Cape Bedford in 18... 99, and the mission had begun with the Lutherans. A young 19-year-old missionary came out from Bavaria and had he not established the mission, we would have been done for, I think, historically. we He found our people in a pretty dire straits. Um, there'd been a gold rush at Cooktown that had been quite devastating for the Aboriginal people of the region. And um, he established a mission to which he committed himself for 50 years. And without him, uh, my historical assessment would be that that we would have been in a, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to rebuild families inside the mission. We wouldn't have kept our languages. We wouldn't have kept our cultures, even though the the experiences they had 
you know, being drawn in from multiple places around Queensland, far-flung places, removed from their homelands and their families, nevertheless, they reconstructed a new community um, in at Cape Bedford Mission, and that's been my home ever since. As combined faith communities, we also have constituents and heavily invested members from the Hindu community and Islamic communities and the Buddhist communities and mm-hmm. so many others. What invitation would you like to offer or encouragement as we're considering our role as believers mm. in supporting First Nations Australians? Oh, it's the empowerment of our people. Um, I think this is the number one problem of our communities. We are severely disempowered. Um, We were locked out of opportunity for a long time throughout the 20th century. You know, we were locked out of opportunities for better education. My father went to grade three in the mission when he had the intelligence to to do better. Uh, It's just unlike America... We just didn't offer um, many educational opportunities beyond a rudimentary primary education until the 60s. And then the Lutheran Church opened up access to its colleges um, in southeast Queensland, and which is where I ended up going to high school the, uh, at a boarding school run by the Lutherans in Brisbane. And it opened up all of the, the world of opportunity to me that that my family could not provide for me. And, and as a result of that, I, 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 I completed year 12 in Brisbane, as did my brother and, and so many other children from the remote communities. And uh, I went on to university in Sydney to become a lawyer. But it was all because the church was the first mover in this, long before government provided scholarships, actually. The, the, the ch- churches were providing opportunities for Aboriginal children, um, but it, 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 I really contrasted with the United States and North America, where black colleges and were established. You know, in the early part of the twentieth century. In fact, the late nineteenth century, they were they were making provision for for schools for African Americans and so on. Whereas in Australia, it was very, very late. 1960s, 1970s was when education became available and the churches were at the forefront of it. Let's go to The Voice specifically. Your proposition is that The Voice in its current form is the best way forward to address that disadvantage you've already spoken of. Why is this voice the answer? Firstly, I would say it is crucial to the empowerment process that we be able to make representations, give good advice, so that we get better policies. And if we get better policies and better response from government, we'll get better outcomes. So the idea of an advisory committee, do you think that's really beyond the capacity of Australians to understand and support I don't understand how there could be a scare campaign around an advisory committee. The the MPs that we elect to the parliament are still the ones that decide what the policies are and what the laws are. All we're, it, all we're doing with a voice is empowering Indigenous people to make representations to, the, to those bodies. 
Critics of The Voice, of course, challenge the idea on the grounds that one group of people can't possibly represent the combined nations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities around the country. What's your view on that? Okay, I come from a community, right? An ex-mission, and Hopevale would need to speak at the local level, would need a voice at the local level, so we can sort out the local issues to do with children, education, health, infrastructure, housing, and everything else at the local level. And we will have the opportunity to work with the parliament following a successful referendum, we'll have an opportunity to make sure the local footprint of the voice at the Hopevale level, at the Yundamu level, at the Wilcannia level, at the La Perouse level, we will have a mechanism to make sure that those local communities that actually have to do the the -the on-the-ground change, you know, if you're going to close the gap, you can't close it in Canberra, you've got to close it in La Perouse, you've got to close it in Dubbo, I can tell you after 20-plus years, you know, 20-plus years of advocating specific programs and specific initiatives to help families, we, we have a Family Responsibilities Commission. Because of the collapse of responsibility caused by welfare, we actually have a commission that says the elders can step in and oblige parents to send their kids to school, to look after their house, to ensure that, um, you know, parents are, and adults are abiding by the law and ensuring that the housing tenancy is properly looked after. We have to do that because that's, that's combating the problems of welfare. And, you know, it took me and my colleagues in Cape York to fight for this reform. And it was so hard. It took a long time. And we got a response and we're really happy with what's happening. But, you know, that's just one community. Not everybody has the ability to force the change and force the reform. And when we have the voice, we're going to be in a position to ask ourselves the question, oh, what imp- does that empower people or is it just empower the people providing the program? And, and this is going to be the great thing. We're going to save money. And we're going to use money more purposefully because I believe if you support the family to rebuild, um, we'll get better results. But the one thing you can't avoid doing is you've got to place the responsibility back in their hands. Okay, let's go to October 15, the day after the referendum. The nations voted yes. What's the timeline? What happens next? Oh, I am sure we will then need to work on the legislation. The parliament will have to develop the legislation, pass legislation, and we will need to work with them on the creation of a bill to design it as best possible. And, And that will take some time. But once we implement the structure, I think this whole thing will play out and we'll start to see the benefit of having programs, having policies not just that are better designed, but that have got our skin in the game. Because one of the problems at the moment is that government does everything, government takes responsibility for everything, they have to account for everything. And we just sit back and judge. We criticise. Whereas the future will be, oh, it's the government and the community 
that are now in this, and we're both jointly responsible, and and you can jointly blame us. I, I heard a young leader from the Kimberley say this three weeks ago, and it really it, it really struck me. He said, "You can blame us, but first give us the responsibility. First give us the voice." And, and I think that will be the change after we do this referendum. You know, this is a time for faith. Have faith in us. We're a good people. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, my people, we're a good people. Don't be fearful of us. Have belief in us. That is the one thing we need from our fellow Australians, some faith, hope and belief in our capacity to finally tackle our problems. If it's a no, how do we go about solving the disadvantage that we're still dealing with today before the referendum? Well, no will be a continuation of the present, a situation where every year the Prime Minister goes into the Parliament and tells us, oh, we haven't made progress on closing this gap. We haven't made progress on closing this gap. And we haven't made progress on closing this gap. We will have a continuation of that. You don't see any other future? uh, Well, what future have we had over the last, say, 26 years, 21 of which have been um, where we've had a coalition government? 21 years. If the status quo was ever going to produce the right results... We've had 21 years to prove it, and it hasn't happened. So those who say, oh, keep it as it is, keep the status quo, where's their evidence that that is ever going to change anything? Because it hasn't so far. Noel, we're coming to the end of our time together. Thank you for it. The conversation over the last weeks and months haven't always been healthy. Come October 14, a fork in the road, yes or no. On the 15th, how do we come together as a nation after all of that and form a straight line together. You know where the first fork in the road was? In 1901, when we were excluded from the Constitution, the Constitution of our own country. That was the source of the problem. We're going to fix it now. We're going to close the gap. We're going to put that one missing piece back into the Constitution um, that recognises... These are the words in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples of Australia. That's the kind of keystone of the Commonwealth that's missing. And in 2023, we're going to do something we didn't do in 1901. 1901, we were excluded from the Constitution. We now have an opportunity with this referendum to put that keystone back into our constitution and complete a united Australia. Noel Pearson, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you for having me. That's Noel Pearson speaking with Dwayne Jeffries in favour of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. As I mentioned earlier, we'll hear from Senator Jacinta Nampijimpa Price from the no side. This is 103.9 Life FM Gippsland. This is 103.9 Life FM Gippsland. Thanks for your company this morning. Earlier this morning, we heard the case in favour of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice from Noel Pearson. Now, Daryl Jeffries will be speaking with Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price about the case against it. 
Senator, thank you so much for your time and spending uh, some valuable moments with the combined faith communities of Australia, a very large group who mm. cared deeply, naturally enough, about the position and the rights of Indigenous Australians. Can I ask how you are right mm. now? With the nature of the debate, what impact has it had on you? Well, let's just say I'm I'm very exhausted. <laughs> um, the, the the amount of travel, uh, the energy that's required to get around the country and talk about an issue that's, um, I think, very personal to me as well. Um, it, it's um, it's it's definitely uh, you know it, it's taken a lot out of me, but um, I have to keep going. Yes. Yes. With the headlines being very much focused on the immediate referendum, mm. could you share a little bit with our listeners what the real state of affairs is for people you love and care for mm. in the Indigenous communities around Australia? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess with my own family, um, my mother is from the community of Yundamu. She um, was born... Um, under a tree. Uh, her first language is not English, it's Warpri. Um, predominantly, uh, most of my family are Warpri speakers, their first language speakers, as opposed to English, um, you know, is not their first language. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I've had gr- growing up in a place like Alice Springs, having a lot of contact with the remote Indigenous communities where my family's lived. Uh, I saw, f- I could, you know, I've lived firsthand the sorts of um, issues that they've been confronted with, you know, alcohol and drug uh, abuse, uh, domestic and family violence, um, uh, uh, circumstances that I've grown up um, understanding quite well all my life. I mean, I was very lucky to have a very loving family with with my parents, but our extended family experience, uh, experienced and still experience, uh, you know, they're some of the most marginalised uh, Australians in the country. And these are common experiences? In a place like the Northern Territory, very common. I think, I mean, you know, there aren't many Indigenous families that don't have a family member that's, you know, suffering from um, alcohol, you know, or substance abuse, gambling, um, some form of addiction, uh, you know, in the Northern Territory also. We have um, a lot of my family are still very connected to traditional culture, culture and cultural obligations. Um, my mother was um, w- was supposed to be part of an arranged marriage and become a second wife at the age of thirteen um, when you know when she was younger. So there are elements of traditional culture that still impact my family's lives, men, much in a very positive way, but. There are also elements of our culture that I guess do things like accept uh, violence, like if the wrong, wrong doing, you know, if there's wrongdoing, there's an expectation that cultural payback is applied. Um, any premature death or illness is thought to be caused through sorcery and there has to be somebody held responsible and some form of payback and sometimes that payback involves violence. These are the sorts of... This is the sort of day-to-day life, lives that, you know, people live in, in the Northern Territory. Given those complex backgrounds, mm. how can faith communities contribute mm. toward drawing the nation together, Indigenous mm. and other Australians? 
Well, the faith community has had a lot of influence throughout um, communities within the Northern Territory. Um, the missionaries provided uh, on the during the violence of the frontier. The missionaries provided safe haven for a lot of Indigenous groups. So, uh, my mother was brought up a Baptist in her community. Uh, there are other communities that are in the Lutheran community as well as uh, Catholic. Uh, depends on which uh, community you are from. Um, usually determines your faith because that, you know, there's been missionaries that have long been involved with those communities as well. And I think um, it's not acknowledged enough the good work that was done back in the day to not just provide safe haven against the violence of the frontier, but provide the opportunity for Indigenous Australians to become skilled and become part of, um, you know, the Australian um, economy as well and, and learning uh, learning those skills into employment and, and those sorts of things. So, and there's a lot of work that is done um, in the faith community throughout the Northern Territory to support uh, Indigenous Australians because, of course, um, you know, it, it, it comes with those communities and, and the fact that obviously, um, you know, my my family and my community are Indigenous but they're Australians as well yeah. and, and often Australians in need. As a vocal opponent of the voice to Parliament, mm. if it's not going to be this profile mm. of response, mm. what in your recommendation is the way to go? Mm. Well, the way to go as I see it is, well, my biggest concern is the, I think it's separatism. I believe it's separatism that has brought us to the situation that we're currently confronted with as Indigenous Australians being treated differently, being treated uh, in some cases like charity cases that, you know, will always require somebody else to scoop in and rescue us when um, removing our agency and having the ability to stand on our own two feet. But going forward, what I would like to see is, um, and I'm prepared to roll my sleeves up and get my hands dirty as the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians to look at the structures that currently do exist because we do have many voices within those structures and bureaucracies and currently I have a motion on the floor of the Senate which uh, um, I, myself and uh, Senator Karen Little from South Australia who is also an Aboriginal woman, uh, Arundel woman, we've drafted um, this, this motion because we want to hold an inquiry into um, land councils, uh, statutes statutory authorities, uh, bureaucracies that receive federal funding and are responsible uh, for improving the lives of marginalised Indigenous Australians. I would like to fix the problem, the, the, the system that currently exists um, and provide more accountability measures going forward. I just don't think we've done enough of that well enough. And creating a whole new very expensive bureaucracy and slapping it over the top of all of that that currently exists... I don't believe is the way forward. The voice has been variously described, and I quote, as powerless or patronising. <laughs> Others believe it to be an open door to activism and a disruption to all lives across the country. Mm. What's your view of what mm. the voice is? Well, simply put, we don't know what it is. We just don't know because we don't have a solid proposal that we can hand on heart 
say that we feel informed enough to um, say yes to, I believe. Um, if we listen to the proponents of the voice and their arguments and certainly what's been written in Document 14, which is known as the Uluru Statement, a lot of what it exists in there, there's very little in way of suggesting um, in practical terms how it's going to improve the lives of our marginalised. There are, however, certainly um, uh, plans or demands for reparations, um, paying the rent, um, uh, you know, creating even a, a, a separate sort of um, power, if you like, a separate kind of black parliament or chamber. To me, separatism doesn't work, but attempting to meet the demands of activists continually isn't about supporting our most marginalised and it hasn't got us anywhere um, so far in practical terms. Every voting household around the country <laughs> Uh, received uh, a pamphlet that I'm assuming you contributed to, which had both the yes and no case in. Mm. And in the interests of an alternative view, there isn't a statement in the yes side that includes some of the things you just mentioned. How do we define the difference between facts and non-facts? Well, there isn't anything really um, <laughs> to, to, to give us confidence of what this is going to look like because... I mean, I, and I have um, I've undertaken the task of questioning the government on the floor of the Senate from six o'clock at night till four o'clock in the morning to understand better the detail, to understand how people are supposed to be, whether they're elected or whether they're chosen. And what I've been told is that they will be chosen um, by uh, by community members. To me, that concerns me deeply because I'm also an advocate for um, uh, for you know against domestic and family violence. And in a lot of small communities, they're controlled quite often by the most aggressive individuals. So if, you know, if it's suggested that we just leave it up to the decisions of communities in that way, that's just opening a can of worms for, um, for conflict, um, for the most aggressive to uh, eventually take control and end up being the representative. Uh, and these are the concerns that are brought to me also by Indigenous people in remote communities of how this is all supposed to pan out and how two people, we don't know whether they're, you know, for the Northern Territory it's been proposed, but we don't know until after we've voted yes, it's supposed to be all put together after the fact. I mean, um, we don't know how... Two Indigenous people from the Northern Territory are supposed to represent everybody. I mean, you know, I, I'm related to Pitinjara, Yankunjara, Nganyantara, Lurja, Aranda, Walpuri, you know, there's uh, Tiwi up north, so many different groups, and there's already infighting um, within the structures that exist. So I believe this will just provide more opportunity for that level of conflict and a lot of Indigenous Australians are concerned for that. And as, you know, well, we don't we don't really know what, what it's supposed to be. The charge that's been put to the No campaign is you don't like this, what do you want to do to solve the great gap issues hmm. uh, between Indigenous Australians and other Australians? Hmm. What is your response to that? What do, yeah. what does the No campaign stand for 
Sure. Well, um, lucky for me, prior to coming into the Senate, I headed up the um, Indigenous Research Program for the Centre for Independent Studies. And what we found was, you know, for me, it's about start. the starting point has to be from an honest um, perspective. So the gap doesn't exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. The gap exists between those who have and those who have not. Now, the further you move away from a capital city, the more marginalised Australians become, everybody. But our most marginalised, and within the Indigenous community, which is 3% of Australians, only 20% of those are in fact marginalised. So the voice is suggesting that uh, we are inherently disadvantaged for no other reason but our race. But there is a really uh, an Indigenous middle class that are doing very, very well for ourselves. The focus shouldn't be on all Indigenous Australians. It should be on those who are marginalised. And you, what you will find and what we found in my research is that the most marginalised are those whose first language is not English, who are still connected to traditional culture and living in regional and remote parts of the country. So what I would do is I would pinpoint um, where the most marginalised are and, and focus efforts in terms of priority on them, but ultimately serve Australians on the basis of need as opposed to race. It appears, polls are telling us, that the No campaign could well be victorious in the run-up through this referendum. What would be the outcome if that were to be the case? And I'd like to hear from you what your thoughts are if it were to be a yes. Sure. Well, look, I think either way, I think this is the most divisive referendum we've ever experienced in our nation's history. And so it concerns me either way. It's not It's not going to be a win for anybody, I don't think, um, whether it's a yes, whether yes is successful or no is successful. And there's going to have to be a lot of work done going forward to bring our country back together. I mean, I haven't seen the issue of race so prominently uh, for some for some time in our country. Um, so if if no gets up um, for me as the shadow minister, as I said, I've, I'm I'm trying to kick off a process already um, of accountability, of understanding where the money is being spent and 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 providing the opportunity for it to be better focused and spent um, to produce outcomes. Um, that is what I'm pushing for, and that's what I'll continue to push for after the fact. Uh, if the yes vote is successful, I will be fighting tooth and nail from the Senate to ensure that there's. Um, the least destructive model of what this might be is created, um, you know, and it's been suggested that we'll all have a say and it's all wonderful. Well, I've been in the Senate and <laughs> um, if you don't have the numbers, you don't have that much influence. Uh, so it, I, I think it's wrong to suggest that, you know, I will play any significant role. It's only, it's at the whim of the government whether they want anyone else other than the Greens who support them um, to play a role in determining what this might look like. And look, a couple of other points that I want to make on this issue also is that one, and, and particularly I know there's, you know, a great migrant community here too. And I, and I think for me as an Australian, we have a one, wonderful shared Australian values that we've all created together, whether we're from the First Peoples, whether we're from the convict class, who are my ancestors also, or whether from the migrant community who've come here more recently. And my, I can say I'm married to a proud Scozzi um, who's a recent Australian. Uh, and I would hate to see our country, um, you know, create classes of 
of people determined by, um, you know, heritage in this country. I'm, I'm dead set against it. Um, and I do, would not want to want for someone who's come here more recently to feel as though they're less Australian. So that's, you know, another reason why I can't agree with this. Um, but also that the voice, the entity itself, once constitutionally enshrined, has the constitutional power and right to challenge the executive, which is the parliament, federal parliament, which is um, state and territory parliaments, local government, uh, which are the the departments and the agencies, the bureaucracies, uh, the governor general even. I mean, if they put forward an argument enough where they, they, they're not pleased with um, a draft bill or something like that, they can challenge that in the High Court, which is their constitutional right to do so, which, um, you know, becomes becomes the dirt in the cogs, you know, you know, slowing slowing Parliament down. Um, and, and that's concerning if it comes to any issues of, um, you know, emergency-related issues or even, uh, you know, matters that, that affect Indigenous Australians are everything because we're, we're, we are Australians. Time is short. I have one last question for okay. you. Okay. You spoke about division in the mm. process of this referendum. Mm. What's your heart for what comes after? How do we re-knit mm. into an Australia of your dreams from here? Yeah, that, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, for me personally, I've, I feel like I've been on a journey um, with this referendum. My hope being somebody who has an Aboriginal mother and a white Australian father and a migrant husband and... Um, I mean, my my children, their background is of mixed heritage too. I mean, my my um, my kids have got we've got a blended family, so I've got a stepson and my my three sons, and they've got Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English, um, uh, French, Malay, Indian, a little bit of Chinese. Great great grandfather from Mozambique. Uh, <laughs> You know, I've said they could probably make a land claim on every continent on the globe, um, <laughs> but that's beside the point. Um, again, for me, it's about bringing us back to our wonderful shared Australian culture and our wonderful shared Australian values. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want to see any more guilt politics um, within our country. I know that the vast majority of Australians have immense goodwill toward Indigenous Australians. And so I, I see myself railing against guilt politics, um, the demands of, of activists to uh, entrench this idea as though Indigenous Australians need to be treated differently to everybody else when we don't. We've got a wonderful country that provides the opportunity for every Australian to succeed. Um, for our most marginalised, it's about focusing our efforts on them to ensure that they know how to take um, take those opportunities for their lives uh, and understand that they do have choice um, as well. And, and that's a remarkable, remarkable part of our country. Senator Numbajibba Price, thank you so much for sharing with the faith communities of Australia. Thank you so much. That was Senator Jacinta Nabijinpa Price speaking with Daryl Jeffries about the no case. Now get planned, the decision will be yours. Early voting begins on Monday with referendum day Saturday, October 14th. For details on where you can vote, visit the Australian Electoral Commission website. This is David Braithwaite on 1039 Life FM Gippsland.